Hello, I'm Ian Abernethy and welcome to this month's ianabernethy.com podcast. Um, so this month we're going to discuss uh, self-defence Viking style, <laughs> uh, which is, I mean, basically what I'm doing is I'm using some old Viking poetry to illustrate some uh, key things about how we can avoid violence and the best ways to address self-defence and I hope you find it interesting. I also thought it'd be, you know, good because the Vikings is something that's viewed as, you know, eminently manly and masculine and bold and heroic, you know. So I thought it'd be interesting to see just what the Vikings themselves regard as being bold and heroic. So if there's any of you that have that kind of gung-ho, tough guy, stand up for myself, fight everyone that looks at me funny mentality, you'll see that the Vikings weren't like that at all, so... Um, but anyway, I hope you find that interesting. So just before we get into that, I'd just like to thank everyone who's recently been at the seminars. The attendance has been really great. Loads of good questions. Lots of fun. Uh, I've really enjoyed them. And we've got seminars coming up in uh, uh, Dresden in, in, in Germany where we're going to look at Basai Dai and Basai Show. We've got one coming up soon as well in Chicago. I love Chicago. I really enjoy teaching there. It's so covering a whole host of stuff uh, there. So if you want, and of course, there's plenty coming up in the UK as well, of course. So if you want uh, details of the seminars, wherever you are in the world, you know, if you go along to ianabernethy.com, uh, click on seminars. You can see the seminar dates drops down on the menu. Click that. You get to know what's going on. And of course, the simplest way to do it is to subscribe. Uh, to the newsletters, which you can do at ianabernethy.com uh, as well. If you subscribe to those uh, newsletters, you'll get once a month or whatever, you'll get a, a newsletter in your inbox that tells you where I am and what's going on and all the latest uh, news. Uh, what, what, speaking of news, just one thing I'd like to mention is we have the Practical Karate Weekly Newsletter, of course, which is one of these... Uh, um, automated things. What it does is it picks up the feed from my stuff and people's stuff that I, they like and then uh, Wednesday morning each week I edit what it's picked up automatically and make it into something a little bit more uh, readable and to the point. So if you want a weekly update to make sure that you're not missing anything that we've put out, um, you can find that as well. If you just type Practical Karate Weekly into Google, you'll find it and you subs can subscribe to that, you know, and then um, again, you'll get notification. And, and it, you know, it's the same web page, just bookmark it and you can see, you know, every kind of Wednesday by about midday UK time Wednesday, there's a new issue out every week. Um, anyway, so that's all I wanted to mention in this introduction. Uh, we'll now start talking about uh, self-defence, uh, Viking style. In this podcast, we're going to look at Viking self-defense. <laughs> Essentially, what I'm doing is I'm combining my interests in martial arts, self-protection, history, and mythology into something that I hope you'll also find interesting. Now, I've also got to confess that the TV show Vikings was part of the inspiration for this podcast. You know, it's not the most historically accurate of TV shows, but, you know, but I do find it uh, entertaining television. Game of Thrones light, essentially, is what it is. <laughs> um, anyway, as, as will become clear, this isn't the history podcast, nor am I any kind of historian, so I'll keep this bit really brief. Um, what I do need to make clear, though, is that the Vikings were not the bloodthirsty barbarians with a death wish, which they're often portrayed to be in you know, movies and TV and popular thinking. You know, while the Vikings lived in violent times, and they were obviously a product of those times, they were no more or less violent than those around them. 
know, so for example, you know, many people are aware of the devastating Viking raid on the Lindisfarne monastery, uh, which marked the beginning of what became known in, as the Viking Age, you know, it was in 793. Uh, less people are aware of the fact that in 782, Charlemagne, um, who history was much kinder to, um, he ordered the forcible conversion and beheading of four and a half thousand Saxons on the borders of the Viking lands. Uh, and in 785 AD, he put into place a law that said all unbaptized Saxons who refused to convert must be put to death. You know, and I remember reading a, a, a book on this, I can't remember, The Hammer and the Cross or something, it was called something like that. Um, a book I read a few years ago where it was suggested that, you know, this may be part of the reason why the monasteries were targeted um, because of religious tensions and the Vikings having the desire to keep their own way of life and to fight back against those who would demand that they change that way of life, you know. Um, and again, personally, I think it's more likely that, you know, they quickly worked out that monasteries had lots of unprotected valuables, but <laughs> I think that's more likely. But anyway, the Vikings were definitely viewed in a negative light by the scribes of the time, and obviously that influences the modern view we have of them. So, for example, one of the scholars in Charlemagne's court, uh, when describing the Viking raid on Lindisfarne, you know, he said, he said, never before has such terror appeared in Britain as we now have suffered from a pagan race. The heathens poured out the blood of the saints around the altar and they trampled on the bodies of the saints in the temple of God like dung in the streets. That's pretty harsh, you know. And of the, the same raid, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, it writes, you know, in this year, fierce foreboding omens came over the land of the Northumbrians, and the wretched people shook. There were excessive whirlwinds, lightning, and fiery dragons were seen flying in the sky. <laughs> uh, these signs were followed by a great famine, and a little after those, uh, in the same year, on the 6th of January, the ravaging of a wretched heathen people destroyed God's church at Lindisfarne. So, you know, again, that's pretty harsh again, you know. I mean, dragons in the sky, I mean, wow, they must have been bad, you know. Um, but, it's, you know, we can see how the Vikings were feared and demonised, and no doubt with good reason for those, you know, that were subject to Viking raids. You know, so they were demonised by Charlemagne's people, you know, but, you know, on balance, you've got to wonder if they had the same disgust when he ordered the slaughter of four and a half thousand men, women and children on the Viking borderlands a few years earlier. Um, and certainly, I mean, there's a poem from 799 recounting a meeting between Charlemagne and Pope Leo III, and that expresses, you know, little concern about using fear and violence to force conversion. Um, it states, What the contrary mind and perverse soul refuse to do with persuasion, let them leap to accomplish when compelled by fear. You know, I mean, the point of all of this is that these were violent times, and the Vikings were no more or less violent than their contemporaries. Um, who history was probably kinder towards, due in no small part to the fact that the vast majority of written sources we have today come from the enemies of the Vikings. They were the literate ones, they were the ones who wrote everything down. So anyway, the point is, it's therefore a mistake to see the Vikings as being a people who were more violent than their contemporaries. As we'll see, you know, they had lots of sound advice on violence and how to avoid it, which I think has some relevance to us today. I mean, it's also a mistake to think the Vikings had a death wish and longed to die in battle in order to enter Valhalla. Like any good warrior, survival was something to be sought and valued. So, you know, a bit of mythology, but those who died at home, the straw death, as it's often said, they were said to go to Hella or Hell. 
And um, this is, of course, where modern Western Christianity takes the name for the abode of the afterlife faced by the evil and the damned. You know, um, the word hell was adopted um, by by um, Christianity. You know, it, it originally came from the, the Vikings. However, to the Vikings, hella or hell, it wasn't a place of torment. It was a neutral place where Viking mythology had the most beloved god, Balder and his wife residing in luxury after death. So, you know, although they share a name, um, the very different kind of conceptions, you know, very different places. And the word Hella shares its origins with the word cellar, you know, so it's got connotations of a place underground, somewhere hidden, somewhere concealed. So the fact that the dead went to Hella simply meant they were residing in the ground and were concealed from the living. So the Val of Valhalla refers to the slain, Val, you know, means the slain. And it's said in the poetry of the Viking Age that Valhalla had a roof made of shields and, and spears. Hella was under the ground. Valhalla, or Valhalla, was therefore still under the ground, but with shields and spears above. So basically, that those that died at home went into the ground, and those that died on the battlefield went into the ground on the battlefield. It's more to do with the location of the death, as opposed to one leading to paradise and the other one to eternal torment. I mean, the common misunderstanding seems to come from mistaking a poetic metaphor as literal belief, and then we have the problem of later romanticism, and we also have the super imposition of uh, modern theology, where one location is desirable, so heaven, and the other is not, hell. I mean, but the Vikings didn't share our view of the afterlife, and as we'll see, the Vikings wanted to survive battles. I'd had no desire to die in battle, nor did they have any mythological motivation to do so. So in this podcast, we're going to draw our understanding of Viking thinking from a poem called The Words of the High One, uh, which I think is pronounced Havamal in its, the original kind of name for it. Uh, and the poem was, it was preserved in a 13th century Icelandic manuscript called uh, The King's Book. Um, the style and nature of the actual poem have been said to date it around the 9th uh, century. Uh, but the poem itself is made up of different sections. You know, it seems like it was originally different poems that have all been put together into one. And it's been suggested that the core part may have even come from as early as the 6th century. Um, so the poem is a collection of advice for a good life, combined with some mythological exploits of the Norse god Odin, or as the English called him, uh, Woden, who Wednesday is named after, you know, Woden's Day. Odin, just as in the Marvel comics and the movies, was the father of the gods. He was a god of war and wisdom, and that's reflected in the advice attributed to him in the poem. Odin is a, a poetic creation, um, but the advice attributed to this poetic creation in the poem was thought to be the epitome of wisdom by the Vikings. So while the deity giving the advice is obviously fictitious, uh, the advice in the poem you know, was obviously taken seriously by the Vikings. I mean, some of the poem is obviously outdated and is no longer culturally appropriate. But there's a lot of common sense advice in it relating to the importance of a balanced diet, uh, to be financially prudent, to spend time with friends, to be good to your friends, to show hospitality to others, to take no joy in evil, to always seek good, to work hard and so on. Um, but none of that's really of concern to us in this podcast. What we want to specifically bring out is the advice the Vikings thought wise when it came to conflict and self-protection. And so like me, I hope you'll find this advice to be sound. 
And I hope you find this an interesting and entertaining way to discuss some of the issues uh, surrounding self-protection. Um, so the first stanza of the poem that I'd like to discuss is the first line of the 70th stanza. And it says, it is better to live than lie like a corpse. The 71st stanza also states, the lame rides a horse, the handless is a herdsman, the deaf is bold in battle, the blind man is better than one that is burned, no good can come from a corpse. So in contrast to the myths about, you know, Valhalla, you know, the Valhalla, the myths about the myths of Valhalla, uh, we can see that the Vikings wanted to survive. Not only that, they wanted their colleagues to survive too. Injured people were valued for the contributions they could make. There's no benefit to people dying. For us in the modern day, survival is our aim too. It's not about fighting a glorious fight in the mistaken belief that somehow makes us manly. There's no glory in going down swinging when you could have applied wisdom to a situation and avoided injury through escaping. The Vikings didn't seek paradise in Valhalla at all costs. You know, that's, it's a myth, that's wrong. They wanted to stay alive. The Vikings also understood the need to be aware um, such that fights could be avoided in the first instance. I mean, the very first line of our Viking wisdom poem, uh, it states, Within the gates a man shall go, warily let him watch. Long let him look about him, for little he may know where a foe may lurk, and sit in the seats within. I mean, there are, there are many lines like this in the words of the High One. The seventh stanza, it states, the knowing guest who watches the feast in silent attention sits. With his ears he hears, with his eyes he watches. Wary are all wise men. Just like the Vikings, we should keep our wits about us. We should habitually take in our surroundings and the people around us such that we can avoid conflict. We can avoid danger. And if we truly, you know, if danger and violent people can't be avoided, then at least we'll have had the opportunity to formulate a plan and we won't be blindsided or taken out before we realise there's even a problem, a problem that exists. So fighting skills alone are an inadequate and a poor solution to self-protection. The samurai knew this. The past masters knew this. And as we've just seen, the Vikings knew this. And we should know it too. Any group of people who have come up with an effective solution to the problem of violence understand that awareness and a healthy attitude to personal safety are a vital part of that solution. I mean, one of my favourite lines in the entire poem also covers awareness. Indeed, I think this is a great summation of the two main contributory factors to violence. You'll find it in stanza 73. It says, uh, Two are your enemies. The tongue can slay the head. Under every cloak, look for a fist. So, as the poem tells us, the way we speak to others can cause problems that can be avoided. Say the wrong thing, or fail to say the right thing, and we can contribute towards violence. Our tongue can indeed slay our head. Uh, the second part again reminds us of the importance of awareness and to look for the signs of imminent violence. To be like a Viking in our approach to self-defense, we need to practice verbal de-escalation. And we need to understand how careless words can lead to violence. We also need to recognize the fist under the cloak in the form of the telltale signs that violence may be imminent. You know, attempts to close space, changes in skin color, a change in verbal tone, you know, excessive swearing, sentences getting shorter and shorter and so on. You know, we need to appreciate and be aware of these things such that we can avoid situations if possible. 
And if we can't, at least, you know, we're there in a position to tactically intervene with preemption and, you know, and so on. Returning to the need to be careful and intelligent in our speech, we find further advice in stanza 125. It said, With a worse man, speak not three words of dispute. Often ill befalls the better man when the worse man wields a sword. <laughs> I love that. I mean, here we're advised that it's not a matter of who's right or who is the better man. You know, this Viking wisdom poem is telling us to avoid arguments because being in the right is no guarantee of safety. If we provoke the worse man, we run the risk of violence and we end, could end up badly hurt or worse. And in the modern age, we can have legal difficulties. Ego, you know, the desire to be right, is not worth risking life and liberty for. You know, we need to be smarter than that. Um, stanza 122 also tells us of the importance of avoiding violent people. Um, you know, it says, you know, an exchange of words with a witless ape you must never make. <laughs> you know, so in the UK, and I'm confident it'll be the same for most other parts of the world too, the majority of violence takes place between young males in places that serve alcohol. So for intelligent young males... It's not fighting skills that best serve self-protection needs, but the wisdom to avoid the potentially violent. I mean, if you come across a witless ape, then you should be like a Viking and avoid uh, engaging with them. The rising of ego such that we wish to stand up to them and, you know, stand up to potentially violent people, I mean, that means we're going to get needlessly involved in verbal exchanges and it's not wise and it's not good self-protection. I mean, stanza 29 also tells us to be careful about what we say and who we say it to. The stanza says, The babbling tongue, if a bridle it finds not, off for itself sings ill. <laughs> so again, we see the importance of what we say being emphasised and that careless words can have consequences. I mean, as we just touched on, uh, alcohol can play a part in poor decision making. So while we... Uh, tend to view the Vikings as hard drinking and boisterous, we'll see that once again they were smarter than that. You know, as a quick aside, you know, in my part of the world, the law relating to self-defence and the use of force uh, is very clear in acknowledging that people can make mistakes and that they should be judged on not as the situation as it was with 2020 hindsight, but as the person in involved in the situation honestly uh, believed it to be at the time regardless of whether they were right or wrong so i mean that's a good thing you know the law judges you on your honestly held belief regardless of whether it was right or wrong you know so one exception to this under the laws of england and wales is that a mistaken belief attributable to voluntary intoxication uh, you can't rely on that one so not only can drink lead to poor decisions, it can also cause additional legal complications. Because if you made a mistake because you were drunk, the law says, well, you can't rely on that mistake. You know, you're held um, accountable for it, um, which you wouldn't be if you were sober. Anyway, so stanza 11 states, Less good there lies the most believe in ill for mortal men. For the more he drinks, the lesser man of his mind does mastery hold. You know, so here we have our Viking wisdom poem reminding us that drink can badly affect our decision making. I mean, that's not to say that the Vikings were anti-drinking, but you know, they were certainly very pro-sensible drinking. Stanza 19, that begins with, uh, Shun not the mead, but drink in measure. Uh, stanza 14 also tells us, It is the best of drinking, 
if one brings his wisdom back home with him. <laughs> so, you know, I like that one as well. You know, So enjoying a good night out in good company can be a positive experience. Uh, drinking so much that we lose our ability to think about the implications of our actions, you know, that's not wise. And once again, fighting skills are no substitute for awareness and a healthy attitude to personal safety. Uh, the words of the high one also has advice on not behaving like a badass and hence irritating those around us. Uh, stanza 64 states, The man who is prudent will make a measured use of his might. He finds when among the brave he fares, the boldest he may not be. So as well as advising us not to draw unwanted attention to ourselves through acting in a bombastic and bold fashion, the poem also warns us not to rub people up the wrong way through boasting about our intelligence. Uh, stanza 6 states, A man shall not boast of his keenness of mind, but keep it close to his breast. To the silent and wise does ill seldom come. As we can see, the Vikings placed a high emphasis on awareness, avoidance, keeping your wits about you, and careful social interaction as a means to avoid violence. I mean, all of this is sound advice that modern-day martial artists would do well to emulate. You know, the Vikings are often viewed as barbarians, and we can see that they've fully understood the need to be prudent in action and speech as a means to avoid violence. Indeed, you could make a case for saying that their valuing of behaviour and actions to avoid violence comes from the fact that they lived in violent times. In our less violent times, this wisdom can be lost on those who, because of no direct experience of violence, mistakenly see it as manly and also confuse defending the ego with protecting the self. Um, you know, I'm reminded of you know, Robert Howard, who was the author of the Conan the Barbarian books. You know, loved them when I was a kid. But he, he has a quote where he says, uh, Civilised men are more discourteous than savages because they know they can be impolite without having their skulls split as a general thing. In our modern times, people can get away with impolite and dangerous behaviour with greater regularity. However, if you combine that behaviour with the wrong people and the wrong location, the results can be devastating. In the modern age, being aggressive, impolite and insulting are sometimes thought to be the behaviour of a tough guy. You know, being polite and accommodating can be mistaken as a sign of weakness. Now, I'd suggest this is because we live in relatively peaceful times. You know, the Vikings, who lived in much harsher and much more violent times, would see modern tough guy behaviour as foolish and dangerous. You know, and we'd be wise to emulate that thinking. Of course, despite our best efforts, a physical answer to the unprovoked violence of others may be necessary. You know, and the words of the high one also has advice on how to best approach conflict. You know, stanza 38 reminds us of the importance of being constantly ready to defend ourselves. Um, it says, Away from his weapons, in the open field, a man shall fare not afoot. For he never knows when uh, the need of a spear shall arise on the distant road. You know, so I mean, I live in the UK where weapons are illegal. You know, so walking down the street with a spear is going to lead to all kinds of problems. <laughs> but you know, I, I think the advice still applies. You know, uh, we need to ensure that our weapons, you know, our ability to defend ourselves, if you like, is still available to us through avoiding becoming distant from them, through daydreaming and not re training to respond to ambushes and poor tactical positioning and so on. The poem also reminds us to ensure that we stay focused on the task at hand when we're engaged in conflict. Stanza 129 states, 
Look not up when the battle is on, lest men bewitch your wits. Now, I can see parallels in this with Eastern martial thinking. You know, we've got to remain focused on the task at hand, to be totally in the moment, or else we'll be consumed by thoughts of fear, injury, anger, and so on, which can cause us to mentally stall, and hence become, you know, extremely ineffective and vulnerable. So to me, this would be like the flowing mind, or mushin, versus the frozen mind, uh, fushin, of Japanese martial arts like karate. Now, when conflict can't be avoided, uh, then brave and forthright action is needed. And stanza 15 and 16 emphasise the importance of being brave, not just in battle, but in everyday life too. Also, stanza, stanza 15 says, The son of a king shall be silent and wise, and bold in battle as well. Bravely and gladly men should go until the day of their death. In stanza 16, that continues, it says, The coward believes he will live forever if the battle he faces not. But old age shall not save him, nor grant him peace, though spears will not take his life. So here we see that bravery was a highly regarded character trait. I mean, just as it was with the ancient Greeks, the Celts, the Vikings, the Samurai, you know, most warrior cultures. However, bravery is quite distinct from the gung-ho ego-driven bravado, which as we've seen, the Vikings regarded as foolish. Uh, stanza 16 reminds us that death is inevitable, and that peace of mind is to be found in knowing that we stood up for things of value. And as we've seen, conflict that has its origins in careless words, ego and drunkenness, were things scorned by the Vikings. However, bold action in defending things that mattered, you know, your life, you know, the well-being of the ones you, you love and so on, you know, that was praised. The words of the High One also encouraged the Vikings not to turn a blind eye to injustice or the suffering of others. You know, stanza 127 states, If evil you know of, then evil proclaim it, and make no friendship with foes. Now, as we saw before, there are many stanzas that emphasise the need to avoid pointless, ego-driven conflict. However, some things are worth fighting for, you know, as this stanza makes clear. And hence the distinction between uh, wise prudence and cowardice, you know, it can be seen here. Yukiyoshi Takamura of Takamura Ha Shindo Yoshinru makes an amazing job of summarising this difference in the following quotation. He said, Some Aikido teachers talk a lot about non-violence, but they fail to understand this truth. A pacifist is not really a pacifist if he is unable to make the choice between violence and non-violence. A true pacifist is able to kill or maim in the blink of an eye, but in the moment of a pending destruction of the enemy he chooses non-violence, he chooses peace. He must be able to make a choice. He must have the genuine ability to destroy the enemy and then choose not to. I've heard this excuse made. Uh, I choose to be a pacifist before learning techniques, so I do not need to learn the power of destruction. This shows no comprehension of the true mind of a warrior. This is just a rationalisation to cover the fear of injury or hard training. The true warrior who chooses to be a pacifist is willing to stand and die for his principles. People claiming to be a pacifist who rationalise and avoid hard training or injury will instead flee of standing and dying for principle. They're just cowards. Only a warrior who has tempered his spirit in conflict and who has confronted himself and his greatest fears can, in my opinion, make the choice to be a true pacifist. You know, I think that's a great quotation. 
you know, this is a take on things we can see reflected in our Viking wisdom poem. The poem advises the Vikings to un avoid unnecessary conflict, not because of cowardice or a lack of ability, but because such conflict is ultimately pointless and harmful. The poem told the Vikings to be brave and to stand up for important issues, but to avoid conflict over ego and careless words. You know, again, this is something we modern martial artists would do well to think on and perhaps adopt similar thinking. I mean, I think asking, will this situation change my life or the lives I care about for the worse? I mean, asking that question can be a good measure when working out what's worth fighting for and what isn't. You know, is someone calling you a name or insulting you really worth risking injury, death or imprisonment for? Is it worth letting a situation escalate to violence just because you need to be seen to be right? I mean, are the contents of your wallet worth risking life and limb for? I mean, I'd say not. I mean, none of the above will have any long-term effect on your life, but the resulting violence could end it or see you in prison for most of it. You know, when looked at objectively, it's easy to see that such situations should be avoided. And the Vikings knew that. Sadly, not everyone today shares that view. You know, conversely, I'm sure you'd agree that protecting your loved ones and yourself from attempts to physically harm you and them is an entirely different matter. These differing motivations for conflict should be acknowledged as being entirely different entities, and they should be acknowledged as that. Fighting over ego is immoral, unadvisable, and illegal. Using force to protect yourself and your loved ones from the unprovoked violence of others is moral, a necessity, and it's legal. You know, we see too much confusion between street fighting and self-protection in our modern age. One other bit of relevant wisdom that our Viking uh, wisdom poem has is the need not to prejudge the effectiveness of anything until it has been proven to work and have value. I mean, the poem gives a long list of things and states at what point we should give them praise. You know, for example, give ice praise when it's crossed. You know, there's, there's loads of them. But among these are things like... Um, a weapon which is tried, a shield which gives protection, a sword that cuts. So here we can see that martial things should be given praise uh, when they've been proven to work. The poem also advised the Vikings to buy a tarnished sword and a lean horse. Again, we see the desire to invest in that which has been proved to have worked. You know, we martial arts types should always do the same and give value to that which works and can be shown to work. You know, as, as we've often discussed in this podcast, things like lineage, uh, the endorsement of a respected figure, style dictates and so on, and no guarantees of function. It's also irrelevant what other noted practitioners can do. You know, it's not, it doesn't matter whether they can make it work or not. It's what can work for you personally that counts. You know, runners judge ru running technique because of its speed and efficiency. Weightlifters judge their technique on the amount of weight they can move. Long jumpers judge their technique on the distance they can cover. You know, and martial artists should judge their techniques on effectiveness. Sadly, in traditional arts, we often see things like arbitrary aesthetics, style pur uh, purity, and the unquestionable dictates of a revered individual. You know, they tend to take priority. You know, I mean, recently I heard a martial artist criticise the body mechanics of another martial artist. You know, and his criticism, he said, his body mechanics are poor, but he gets away with it because his movements are so fast and powerful. 
<laughs> I mean, here's a wacky notion, but the fact his movements are fast and powerful is the result of the body mechanics that you just criticised. And what's worse, that criticism is based on some arbitrary dictate of how things should be done. I mean, you never get that in any other pursuit. You'd never get a running coach trying to enforce a pure style of motion that can be demonstrably shown to be less efficient because some semi-deified runner of the past said it had to be done that way. It just wouldn't happen. You know, effectiveness is the only valid measure of a method if it's effectiveness that is being sought. Uh, when we measure by effect, we invariably get highly efficient motion. And that, by default, is often very pleasing to the eye. You know, when we seek movements that are pleasing to the eye because of some arbitrary dictate, then we don't automatically get efficiency or effectiveness by default. You know, we want the proven tarnished sword, not the unproven one that looks pretty. Um, so I hope you've enjoyed this little look at Viking thinking as recorded in the poem The Words of the High One. As we've seen, you know, a large part of that poem deals with awareness, avoidance, keeping your wits about you, and not engaging in behaviour that could provoke the violence of others. We're advised to avoid dangerous people and situations and not engage in arguments with such people. You know, the Vikings are often considered to be the epitome of the Dark Age warrior. Uh, they're viewed as being rugged and hardy. You know, but as we've seen, they were also smart, prudent, and they valued awareness and politeness as ways to avoid conflict. You know, it's an updated model of this intelligent warriorhood that we should be embracing today. It's not just about being tough and having fighting skills. You know, such a one-trick pony would be criticised for a lack of wisdom by the Vikings. We also need intelligence, prudence, discretion, good manners, and the ability to differentiate between what's worth fighting for and what isn't. Approaching self-protection Viking style is entirely in accord with the needs of modern self-protection. Now, as I hope I've demonstrated, there's much that we have in common, you know, between the martial insights of the Dark Age, you know, Northern Europeans, and the martial insights of the Eastern systems that, you know, we practice today. You know, in this information age, we're so lucky that we can draw on the martial wisdom from many different peoples, ages and cultures. You know, the words of the High One is a poem that's over a thousand years old. But as we can see, the fundamental dynamics of human conflict haven't changed that much. Um, and then, you know, there's lots of sound advice we can find in that poem. But of course, I mean, there's nothing unique in that poem either. You know, the same advice can be found um, given by people in the modern day, it's in the writings of the past masters who shaped the arts that we practice. You know, and regardless, you know, I hope that this old poem has provided an entertaining way of discussing some of the non-physical and often overlooked aspects of a complete approach to uh, self-protection. <laughs> Well, I hope you found that a fun and unusual way to look at some of the issues relating to uh, modern self-defence. And, you know, it's having that idea of, you know, what a martial artist is, you know, what a, what a warrior is. And we see from this poem, you know, there's a lot of intelligence involved. It's not just about kind of, you know, kicking ass and taking names. It's, it's much, much more than that. 
Um, and obviously there's lots of stuff we could be drawn from the, the writings of you know the Eastern masters to kind of back these ideas up, but I thought it'd be fun to just look at them from a slightly different source, and if you're a fan of the TV show Vikings, hopefully you enjoyed that. <laughs> um, so I'll be back with a new podcast soon. I've already decided on the theme for the next one. We're going to be looking at uh, Keon. Uh, in terms of you know line work and what what I think about line work and just to give you a little preview I think it's a really good idea I think it can be overdone but I, I sometimes worry that those of us who are seeking uh, more practical karate end up throwing the baby out with the bathwater and we lose kind of good dynamics and good movement and things like that so I want to kind of make the case for Keon and you know suggest where I think the balance lies between doing it and overdoing it. So um, th- that'll be in uh, the next podcast, you say, which hopefully I'll get out uh, in sometime in May, you know. So I uh, really appreciate, always say it, but it's because I mean it, really appreciate you listening to these podcasts. It's, it's very kind of you. I know there's lots of things you could be doing with your time, um, but I hope you found it uh, useful and interesting, and I'm very grateful to all of you who kind of spread the words on these podcasts as well, because um, we can see... Every time I talk to somebody, people's you know, I listen to this podcast and that podcast. It's always nice to know that plenty of people are listening to them. So um, I'll be back with another one, as I said, very soon. Until next time, you know, I hope life's good to you. Uh, so stay lucky, and I'll speak to you soon. Take care. Bye bye. <laughs>